Welcome to the Runners Connect Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Jeff Gaudet. How many of you 40-year-olds out there run with the teenagers and college kids and regularly beat them? On our show this week is world record holder Anthony Whiteman, who at age 40 last summer ran a 358 mile in Nashville, Tennessee to win a professional track meet and become the first man to ever break four minutes over the age of 40 in an outdoor mile. Anthony, who talks to us all the way from Britain, is going to tell us exactly how, as a 41-year-old, he's continued to run at a high level his entire life. Here's some of the things we plan to talk about. One, changing a training plan as one ages. Two, jumping back in the game after an extended off period. Three, what it means to be a magpie rather than a sponge. And four, what the quote, no running movement is really all about. As always, to check out any of the resources we might mention during the show, go to www.runnersconnect.net slash rc31. That's runnersconnect.net slash the letter R, the letter C, and the number 31. Okay, Anthony, uh, so I've given a brief introduction about who you are, uh, but a little bit in your own words, talk to us about your background. Um, well, I started running, you know, like most um, kids do at school, school sports day, you win a lot of events. Um, one of the other mothers um, was involved in the local club, invited me to go down. Um, I was given my first pair of spikes, a pair of Gola spikes, to remember them now. Um, I kind of started from there, started with cross country, because I kind of, I think that was kind of um, June time when I went down, the track races weren't really, I kind of finished by that time, you know, it's quite an early season when you're, when you're quite young. So I missed most of the track seasons, I started with the cross country, um, I kind of really got into it, and then the following summer, it was my first track season as an um, 11 year old, and just got into it from there. And, uh, I really enjoyed the kind of the social aspect a bit more. Um, I had a really good training group, um, and we were socialised together. Um, so kind of the training and racing bit, which is kind of part of, of kind of growing up as, as amongst your friends. Sorry, you may you may hear the thunder in the background. It's storming pretty bad outside here. <laughs> um, so the social aspect—that's awesome. That's you know that that's cool because a lot of your you know a lot of people probably that even you race against a lot of your world-class athletes aren't necessarily originally getting into it because of the social aspect but a lot of other people in the world do get into running because of the social aspect uh so that 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 that's a cool a cool a cool touch for you excuse me um you know you've been a world-class athlete uh essentially for two decades now uh what what um as you progressed um, you know, you, you got into it from in the social, you know, because of the social aspect. How did you kind of progress from there? Well, with, well, being in this kind of social aspect, as, as you said, I was I got down to about three forty seven, which was which is pretty good, kind of. I mean, remember the, the, the times that I was running in the, the sport was much stronger. So um, I was I once ran three forty seven in my county championships, and the county is kind of like. You know, the size of, a, of one of your cities in America. So it was kind of a small event. Um, yeah, I'm running 347, I'm not winning. Um, now, if you can break four minutes for the first 1500 meters, you're going to be winning companies. Right. At the time. So, um, you know, I was good, but not outstanding. 
Um, and that year I ran in the, um, the 1992 the Barcelona Olympic Trials. Um, and I didn't run that well in my heat. I didn't get through to the final. But I kind of thought, right, okay, I've run through 347. The Olympic cycle has ended and obviously it's going to start again, really the build up to um, Atlanta in 96. If I take off 10 seconds from my 347, that'll get me to 337. Olympic qualifying time is 337.5. So two and a half seconds per year, mathematically, I thought that wasn't that difficult. Yeah. So that was kind of my goal and um, I went to... Um, Uh, hey, you, you, you kind of broke up there for a second, Anthony. Okay, um, so I went went from there to um, <clears throat> kind of finished off my school, and then when he went to university, and then um, that's where it kind of really took off because I improved by one second in the first year, um, and then I went and I um, went to university, and I found that we didn't have a structured program like you do in 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 the USA with your collegiate system. It, well, you just left your own devices. I competed for my university, but there wasn't a structured training program within it. But luckily, there was um, a coach called Alan Story, who his training group was five or six miles away from where my university was. And so I just turned up, essentially uninvited, and just joined in because he was that kind of guy who would let anyone join in the, in the training session. And I effectively did an apprenticeship um, at within, within his group because there are internationals that are in it. Um, there were plenty of Olympians kicking about um, and you kind of learn how to train in, in that social aspect that I got used to in my own training group was very much there within the training sessions. Nobody was expected to take the pace all the time, you shared the work. Um, I remember once getting told off by one of the senior members of the group for putting a, putting a kick in the end of the session to win the last rep and he was like, we don't do that. You know, if you're strong, you work harder at the front and that's always stuck with me. Um, and now if I have a go to training groups, I reorganize them so that everyone in, in the um, in the training group knows there's expectation of them to put work in, in in the session. It's not all about one guy sitting at the back and um, and get a free ride. I mean, I had this situation in South Africa where a training group, and there was a good athlete called Glody Dube, and he was from Botswana, and he's a 144 guy, and we trained in that group, and he just sat at the back and did nothing. And I, at the end, I pulled him out, and I said, mate, you're not training with us. If you're going to do that, you either, get, you either get stuck in or you don't train with this. It's your choice. And he was quite taken aback because I guess everyone would I'd let him have a free ride all the time and just, you know, yeah, you're, you're a good guy, you're a 144 guy, it's okay for you to do that. And I was like, no, it's not acceptable for you to do that. You, in fact, you should be taking more of the work because you're that good. Right. So that, that apprenticeship that I then... You know, and now when I when I mentor athletes and we do training groups, we do exactly that. I tell them, right, you're taking rep two, you're taking rep three, you're taking rep four. Everyone does the work. You don't overtake that person on their rep unless they've really messed it up. And it's mutual respect, and that's how the group develops. And you then know that the, how how it all works. I mean, you know, it's almost like military the way I would I'd organize a training group based on what I was taught because it was I felt it was the best way to get a when you're doing a big session if you're doing you know, 10 by a K on the track. You know, you've got to for one person to lead the whole session. You break it up and everyone does their bit. And then you all get a better session out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so would you say, you know, because obviously you, you, you ran in the Olympic trials in 1992. That was 
21 years ago, and then you were in the Atlanta Olympics, and then I believe you were in the Sydney Olympics too, right? That's correct, yeah. So then, you know, the, the that era of athletes, you know, your Hisham El Garouge, your uh, young Haile Geber Selassie, um, that era of professional elite world-class athletes, most of them, you know, Geber Selassie obviously is still around, but not he's not on the track anymore. They've all either moved off the track or retired. Would you say that the social aspect of your training group is what kept you competing at a high level, you know, all these years, basically? Yeah, because it was good fun, you know, and, and my my nature is that I'm quite aggressive within within training in that I will try and run the legs off people in, in training sessions just because they're there and because they're something that I want to prove to them that I can do it. And so that, that, that's never gone away and it never will go away. Um, so I just, I'm just in there to organize a group and then run, run, run away from it at the end. That, that's just kind of how, how it always has been and my brain hasn't changed. Right. Um, luckily, my, my physicality has, has allowed me to carry on doing that to some extent. I'm still just as bad. You know, I'm, I still will happily destroy people in, in the end of a session, you know, not by saving all my effort for the last one or something like that, but just destroying them gradually before, you know, through the session, and the last rep just, you know, making it impossible for them to stay with me. <laughs> and, and, and I guess that drive is, is what makes me good is, as far as you know, getting further through athletics than anyone ever expected of me. Yeah. yeah. Because I was not seen as, you know, I never was anywhere near making like the World Juniors or um, anything like that or, you know, win winning um, English schools, which is our kind of um, our major event when you're quite young. Um, you know, getting internationals, you know, before I was in my mid-twenties. I think but that, <clears throat> that kind of willingness to push myself was a, was a big asset that I didn't realize that I had because I thought everybody had it. And I think that that's what you learn now, that that's not gone away. And I think my reasons for wanting to carry on running now are often just because I find it's a great outlet for my obvious aggression that I'd rather get out in, in, a, in a training session than right. any other. It's yeah. <laughs> a lot healthier way to get, get it out. Yeah. <laughs> So a lot of our listeners on the Run to the Top podcast are, you know, masters runners. They are you know, 40 plus years old or even 30, 35 plus years old. Um, so someone like you who last summer as a 40-year-old set the world record in the in the men's mile outdoors, um, three, 357, right? 358. 358. Okay, I'm sorry. I was at that oh. meet and I just – anyway <laughs> – uh, so you ran 358 last year as a 40-year-old man. Um, what What's the biggest thing? Because uh, you know, I think our listeners could probably learn a lot from how you've progressed. What's the biggest thing that's changed in your training from when you were 25 to now? Well, the volume is a lot less. Um, I can't go out and do. I, I try to train twice a day very often. Every now and again, I might be able to fit it in. Um, I just think I've just cut away the crap. I mean, I, I did a session tonight where I just went to a local park and I've got a loop that's about 400 metres, somewhere near, it's a bit short, and I've got another loop which is about 200 metres, and I just did, did basically four sets of 400, 200, with a fairly short recovery in between the four and the two, and a bit longer between the, between the sets. 
And I kind of thought, well, I don't want to be spending all my time doing drills and stretching and all that sort of stuff. So I just always take the first rep as a kind of a sighter and a steady one. And, I, and it's actually like a, um, a warm-up, that kind of a race speed warm-up. And then I just relax on that one. And then I see the session starts from then on. Because um, if I spend too much time on my legs, I get kind of tired, you know, doing loads and loads of drills, loads of stretching and big long warm-up sort of thing. So I kind of cut it away right back to the bones of the session, which is the bit that's going to progress you is the meat of the session if you do that properly. And just by backing off the first rep, I can still do the rest of the session well. And, um, you know, without putting myself under undue pressure with loads and loads of extras that you know, sometimes I think are a bit unnecessary. So uh, there... There's a movement, at least in America, uh, amongst some masters runners, where they they specifically their training plan is to run less than what you know what a generally accepted you know say two flat 800 runner or or four flat miler or whatever. They're specifically running less than that, and you know I've even seen some people call it their no running training plan. Is that uh, basically you endorse that? Absolutely, and I think what, what is the key to that, why it works, is because of the aerobic base that exists, because these guys, including myself, have been running, well, I've been running, you know, since they started at 10, you know, I'm going to be running 31 years, and I've had little breaks here and there, but pretty much, so I've got a massive aerobic base that exists, so I don't need to keep, keep fulfilling that, so I can almost look at my races, what I do, I look at how far I need to run, so a mile, is four minutes hard running. So it's not that far, not that long. There's no need to be running 90 minute runs to run for four minutes hard. Not with the background I've got. So I kind of take go away from that. I can still do it. If you really made me do it, I can go out and run for 90 minutes. As long as I can feel that I could do that, that's almost enough. I mean, I ran the um, European clubs race in um, Portugal. And I went out for a run the following morning, and I ran for an like hour and five, just because it was a nice place to run, and it was, you know, through pine forest by the sea, and I'd happily do that, but I don't need to do it. I don't feel the need to do it, but I do need to do the stuff, the faster stuff, because that's relevant to the distance I'm trying to race. So I try and make it very, the training very relevant to what I'm trying to achieve. And sometimes I think that the elite guys and the guys that are full time can kind of have the opportunity to do too much training that is not that relevant always because it's it's kind of can't do a session every single day so what you're going to do in day ups well you've got to you know keep ticking over so you might as well go and do something reasonably hard um, and go and do loads of steady running so I kind of cut that away because I feel I don't need to do it anymore because it's already in there it's already in the bank right so just as a as an example what would an average seven day time frame look like any doesn't have to necessarily be a, a, a week, but just like pick up seven days out of the calendar, any seven days in a row. What would that look like for you, training-wise? I would try to run three sessions, and I would try to have four recovery days. And the recovery okay. day, I'd obviously run on the, those recovery days, um, and I might do something like a circuit training session on one of those days um, as well. So I would, I would try to get three decent sessions in, but I would try and make them a bit different. So it might be my usual plan, um, certainly last year when I was training properly, was one traditional interval session, which would be kind of in the winter, kind of K reps or mile reps or longer reps. Um, and in the summer, something a bit quicker, um, kind of the traditional kind of like 300s, 400s type session. 
and then I would run a hill session. I was a great believer in the power of hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, always done them, always done hill reps. Usually about 45 seconds long, eight reps, jog back recovery, pretty fast. I mean, so that I'm killing the last one. Um, and then I usually run a tempo um, on, you know, which would usually be kind of 5K, trying to run it. Well, if I'm fit, I just shade over three minute K if I'm, you know, if, if I'm running well. I, I did it a few times last year. Well, I, I managed to run a 14.28 a 5K race, so I could run kind of 15, 15, 15, 30 in a tempo, and it didn't kill me completely. Um, so that would be a kind of like normal, say last year when I was training properly hard for it. Um, and, you know, this year, to be honest, I've just kind of cobbled it together. I mean, um, <clears throat> it's only because I felt there was a couple of races coming up on, on the horizon, that I wanted to be competitive for, which was my club races, European clubs, which is effectively like the Champions League mm. in soccer. The Champions League is the champion of each country. And that was quite a prestigious event to do. Um, so I wanted to do that for my club because that was something I'd never done before. And I wanted to run, go back to Nashville and try to kind of defend my title, as it were. Um, but this all came about in March. It was like, that's when it, it seemed quite likely that those races would be available to me if I wanted, if I was fit enough. So I was like, right, quick, let's get fit. <laughs> it was a challenge, you know, effectively try and get, go from zero to sub four minutes in 12 weeks, which is, you know, because the, the race in Nashville was on the 1st of June, and I started training on the 1st of March. Uh, and I went out and I ran a 5K in 16, 30, 16, 14, and it That was the first thing I did on the 1st of March. Uh, so... You know, I was obviously upset about how I, how badly I ran in Nashville, but I was kind of, it, in baking terms, I was undercooked. Um, I hadn't done enough work. Um, I needed to be very lucky with the conditions. Um, I wasn't sick. I got a bit sick out there, unfortunately, just too much traveling. I needed to execute my race kind of perfectly. I didn't do that. So... Um, and also, I mean, I also wasn't paying attention with the um, start times. I, I saw a draft and I saw my race was 10 o'clock. It turns out it was more like half 10. So I'm a spike by 35 minutes. And by the end of it, I'd done so many strides. I'd done so many kind of prodding about. I'd kind of gone over the cliff and was not really wanting to run by that time. It actually did the start line game. And that's my own fault because I should have checked you know, to make sure what the revised start time was, not the one that I saw, you know, in the first draft. So, you know, I'm kind of mad at myself that I uh, didn't do myself justice. But, uh, right. that's, part, that's part of running, you know, four three was crap. Was awful, you know. <laughs> I actually found a mile too far. I've done, I've done three miles this year. I did a road one. I did one in, in some really bad conditions in Ireland. And I actually found it too far. And I think that's the bit I got right last year. By working on my 5Ks, my 10Ks through the winter and through the spring, I was strong. And this year, I didn't do any of that. So I just tried to kind of work on my natural speed, what I've got left. And it wasn't enough. And I was blowing hard after 800 in Nashville, where <laughs> I was relaxing and you know, looking to move through. So it's just kind of different. You learn so much. I mean, that's a, you know, if I ever do, you know, coach and, you know, I'm, I'm forever, you know, learning about myself and being able to put that 
into different boxes as far as what it's relevant to, and then at some point, I hope we'll be able to bring it all out. Um, you know, and be able to, you know, advise athletes how to get fit in different situations because I've done it myself. You know, I've just done it all the same way. I've tried to get fit. I've tried to get fit slowly. I've, you know, and everything in between. Right, and that's that's an advantage of having been at at, at the pretty much the top level of sport for such a long period of time. Uh, what would you say, you know, let's say one of our listeners maybe took off, took five or six or ten years off of running, um, and, you know, maybe whatever they did back then, you know, they were pretty good, whatever that means. Um, but now, you know, they took that time off. They might have gained a few pounds. Uh, where would they start? You know, now they're now they're 41 years old. Where do they start to uh, get back into the swing of things? Well, I can just say what I what my plan was um, for the, for this year. Kind of having started, my felt from nothing, and I broke it down into three months. So three single months. I did one month of endurance, one month of transition, and one month of kind of speed work. So what I mean by that is I kind of worked on my 5K to start with for the first month. So I was doing sessions like K, K repeats and more repeats just to get my training base um, up to up to scratch. So I was just to do the same thing. They put, put in some base work at the slower pace. So you go and you start running, you know, whatever is, is tough but not impossible for you. So, you know, say they're a 20-minute 10K run, you've got to be knocking out in your training, um, you know, going for a kind of four-minute case and, and regularly running at that kind of pace to build up that, that kind of training, training kind of um, the same base that I did. And then when I went to transition, what I meant by that was I would kind of say my typical session was kind of five by one K. Um, I would take out the last two Ks and replace them with a kind of mini session. So I'd run three by a K, the same as I would normally in my kind of endurance part. But then I would drop in say it might be eight 200s. So the four 200s would count for each, each count for a K. So doing eight 200s count for two K. So it, it kind of adds up in my mind to the same amount of work as a, as a five by one K session is. But I'm t- turning my legs over a lot quicker because the chances are I'm going to be running those 200s inside 30 seconds mm-hmm. to run that kind of sub four minute mile pace and reintroducing my legs to that kind of, that kind of pace. Again, they would do the same sort of thing. You then would you're comfortable running those those reps at, at your kind of 5k race pace and you then start putting bits and pieces in there at mile race pace at the end you're well warmed up as i said you know us, us masters we need to be well warmed up not really in the mood for doing loads of drills and loads of stretching you know it's like yeah more important things we haven't got the time to muck about live in anyway with all that sort of stuff but i can use the three by a k to warm myself up so when i'm doing those twos i'm i'm, at, I'm in a nice temperature so i'm not creaking and straining to run fast and then once I've gone through that the final bit was to do proper kind of track sessions the kind of 10 by 4 and the 10 by 300 and the set to 200 that you know normal track guys would do so I've taken two months to get there and I've reintroduced it gradually to my body um, and that's kind of what I did and this is a few races as well which I saw as the track sessions you know places that it's in the, you know you see now with this, this very much Galen Rupp style these Salazar where you get guys prepping and doing sessions at the end of races. It was quite funny watching these, you know, guys that only just breaking four minutes doing sessions after after the, after the um, their races. Thinking, well, 
Yeah, I mean, like, I think if Gail and, and, and Mo Farrell weren't doing this, you wouldn't be doing that. So it's a bit... <laughs> don't we yeah. know if doing it because they do it. You know, it's kind of a bit different. You know, their level is so much higher. I just thought it was quite funny. Yeah, definitely. Is that... Uh, is, is that... That kind of train, that three-month training plan, is that a scalable thing? Like, let's say, you know, this, this hypothetical individual, their goal race at the at the conclusion of those three months is a 5K, you know, like a 5K road race. Is that a is that a scalable um, sort of plan that you just presented? Yeah, absolutely, because I, I would look at my goal, i.e. the 5K. I would look at the pace I was looking to run in that 5K. Say I was trying to break 15 minutes, like three minutes per K. And I would kind of go up distance, so I'd be looking to kind of run, you know, 10 Ks and, and try and run kind of like 32 minutes and under and do the work required to do that. And that would be my initial phase. And then I would start introducing um, sessions with, you know, sub three, a three minute K work in it. And then finally, I'm doing that last kind of like few weeks before the race where I'm going a little bit quicker than that, you know, and started running kind of like 250 pace, or maybe shorter distance, maybe kind of 600s or 800s at that kind of pace. So that the idea being, when I get on that start line and the gun goes, three-minute Ks aren't killing me. They aren't, re- they aren't really fast. In the same way, when I started that race in uh, Nashville last year, you know, 59s, I was just chilling. I was just, just strolling because I'd done, I'd run 148, you know. Mm-hmm. I was used to going through in 52, 53, up through 400. So when I hear 59, I'm not scared of it because I know I can run a lot faster. So when you hear and you look down, you watch and see the 255, you're not scared of it because you've seen, you know, you've seen so many reps that you've run quicker than that, get you comfortable. So that kind of works all the way back in that in that system. Where, you know, say it is scalable. You kind of work back, you know, from your target race and your target pace. Um, you know, I also did a lot in my in my career of, of tapering. Where when I got to the major champs, the kind of the last kind of seven days before, I would do a track session every single day, and the session the day before um, my my first round would be two two hundreds, two two hundreds at kind of you know twenty eight twenty nine, which is I used to kind of think fifty eight fifty eight was my kind of seven fifty eight my kind of my fifth hundred meter race pace. So I did a week of sessions, and it, it may have been the, the day one would have been you know ten threes. And then day two would have been, I don't know, 12 twos. And you just come, come down and down in volume until you go from, you know, 10 threes down to two twos, you know, in a nice kind of like straight, you know, curve down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm so used to running that pace. And the sessions aren't that hard anyway. That when I get on the start line and we go out in 60, I'm like, oh, my God, this is so slow. I can't bother running slow. You know, it's, it's, you, know you, you suddenly think I've got such a big kick left. So I'm, I'm used to running so much faster than this that when it when it accelerates on the, in the last 500, I'm going to be comfortable and able to get through because you know I've kind of taken myself to do this. So that kind of thing as well, you know, just working back from your time, you know, what what your main goal is. Yeah, I'm always advocating it. If I ever coach anyone, that's how exactly I would do it. Yeah, and that's that's great. Where would you? Um using that plan, where would you, you know, let's say, like week six, uh, there's a little bit of a calf strain, maybe you have to miss a couple sessions, mm-hmm. how do you alter, do you do you then look forward to your goal race and say, okay, we need to change, you know, maybe pull back on the reins a little bit with the goal, 
or do you you know do you kind of full bore ahead how do you handle that i mean any injury you've got to get it sorted i mean so you're then looking at trying to be first be proactive um with your recovery process so that when you do a session you you know the moment you cross the line in your session you're then preparing for the next one so you're making sure your your hydration is all there you're making sure you're you're going to eat within an hour, you know, warm down properly, you're going to use your compression socks, you're going to have, you know, an ice bath, hydrotherapy, you're going to have a massage the following day. You are going to, you know, do whatever you can to try and avoid those um, those injuries before they happen. And I think a lot of time that it happens, don't do that. They leave themselves open to, um, you know, the potential of getting injuries. I don't so much believe in, in unlucky athletes. I think sometimes I believe in unprepared athletes that they're just you know, not willing to do what is required or will go through the motions of it and not actually really do it. Um, so, you know, there, there are exceptions to every rule. There are people out there that do all of that and still get injured, you know. But I just yeah. think that there are a lot, a lot that just, you know, just don't, don't you know, do what is required, you know. And, are being proactive with their, um, you know, or they are doing things like, you know, <coughs> recovery runs, you know, running them really fast, some sort of bravado. I mean, you know, I, I need to get my recovery runs done because I want the session to go well. I want that to be the thing that, that, that is my focus of the week. So I always look at if I'm doing three sessions a week, I've got three spikes in a week. And within those three spikes, it's maybe the last two to three reps of each session. It's actually important. So my whole week is kind of directed towards going well in that in that kind of ten percent, five percent of the session. And if I've run my, my city runs too hard or you know I've done something else and loads of weight or something like that and it impacts on that, I think I've failed my week. You know, I haven't, you know, because I haven't correctly focused on the right part. Right. Uh, so I mean I'm very much you know I want my sessions to go well. I do what is required to make things go well. So I'm not going to go and do not do steady run. I'm not going to rest so my sessions can go well. I'll, I will go out and run, but I won't go out and run in any way to impact the session. If that means having my, uh, <clears throat> you're wearing a heart rate monitor, knowing where my onset of blood lactate is, you know, where my two millimole points are, which I found out, you know, what that equates to in my heart rate. And so my steady runs have to be below that. I did that when I went back, went to altitude. I went to altitude for the first time ever, and I gave myself a very clear system where all my steady running was below 150 beats a minute on my heart rate because I went and got went to a lab and got tested, and that's where they reckon two millimoles was. So even if you had to walk, I would walk on a run to keep it below 150. Okay. And I trained there, trained altitude for. Um, for four weeks, I went down to sea level and did a local club race that yeah, um, South Africans put on, and just went in there, really relaxed, just thought, I'll just run a 1500 meters, see where I am, um, didn't really go with the pace, kind of caught the guys up at the bell, put the foot down on the, on the, on the, um, on the last lap, I ran 335, and I honestly wasn't trying, and it was one of the best races I ever ran. Because I got my training absolutely right, you know, I, I listened to what the sports scientists have said. I did exactly what they said, even to the point where ego was telling me, "You can't walk. You're you're Olympic athlete. You can't go walk." You know, but I was really hot. You know, it was it was very hot. I wasn't used to the weather. I was at altitude, so I walked. You know, yeah. if, if I was going up over a bridge or up a hill, and, and my heart was beeping, if I had to sweat, I had to walk. I had to walk. 
Yeah. No, yeah. That, that, that's quite funny but i did you know a couple of occasions i just you know went to an almost standstill just to let my heart rate drop down and then went on again resumed yeah and that's that's important because uh especially you know you're not 20 anymore you're 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 not going to recover with the same rate as you were i guess that's what people tell me i'm 23 so (laughs) but uh so basically you you said earlier that you know, you don't do a whole lot of drills beforehand. You don't do a whole lot of, you know, necessarily warm-up exercises or whatever. You don't feel like that's very important. But you do think, you know, your your post-workout ice bath, you're your getting your compression socks on. every All the little things afterwards, you think those are really important in terms of anything you can do to enhance recovery and get get to the – basically get to the starting line of your next session. Yeah, I've always always been more of a, more of a fan of that. I've always preferred to kind of like warm up through the session. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't like sessions. I've never had where you got to hit it hard from rep one. Um, you know, they're the sessions I used to fear because I was never really ready for it until you know, kind of a, a third of the way through the session, I was starting to feel better. Um, so, yeah. But then, I, yeah, I was. I think always always planned more. The recovery part of it, and I did the kind of the warm up. I, I did what was required. You know, I wasn't standing on the start line freezing cold or anything. I, you know, I did some drills, but right. when I watch other athletes and their drills are absolutely brilliant. I mean, you know, it, the, the thing with with running is it's such a personal thing. I mean, you know, there is no one way to do it. I think that that's the bit that you kind of learn. Um, when I when I do my mentoring, I talk to the athletes about you know they get given loads of information and they're always told to be a sponge. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I actually disagree with that. I think don't be a sponge because that means you're taking all the information in. Um, I don't know if you have it. The same bird. We have a bird called a magpie, and a magpie here is attracted to shiny things. So the idea of a, of a, of, a, of a, this magpie bird is it picks out the bits it likes. So I say to them, be a magpie, because they all know what a magpie is, and they know that it's known for picking out shiny things. And go and be selective of what you pick out and take on board. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what I've done because obviously I've, I've trained with the best guys. I've trained with, you know, numerous top, top brilliant kind of like, you know, middle distance runners. And I would never change my training to kind of fit theirs, but I would steal ideas from them. Yeah. And I, and I would kind of take them into my own training without taking the whole of it. Yeah. I mean, the bits and pieces. You know, I, you know, I used to train with Noah Nien, you know, kind of one of the most talented athletes I've ever trained with. And I, I couldn't do, you know, they used to do their workouts in the morning. Couldn't do that because I'm just, I'm just not built to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I go hammering sessions at 10 o'clock in the morning. But there were bits and pieces that I could take from their training, you know, that, that, was, that was beneficial to me. Um, you know, and I could train with um, a guy called Ezekiel Sepeng, who was a silver medalist over 800 meters, 142 guy. Again, you know, it was bits and pieces that, that um, you know, in his training that I would then do in my own. Um, he had some cracking kind of um, circuit training things we would do. And do you know what a burpee is? You know what a burpee is? Yeah, it's an exercise. You just squat thrust followed by a jump. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so one of the things he would do in training, we'd do um, 30 seconds of um, these burpees and you build up massive lactate. And then a coach blows a whistle after 30 seconds. You then got to sprint 100 meters. And it's the funniest thing ever because you've got the most amazing amount of lactate ever. And you yeah. run like you, your legs don't aren't part of you. And I used to do that. And it, it's one of the toughest things I've ever done. 
Um, but really good, really good for you to kind of like in that massive lactate tolerance feeling that you can only get in a race. How do you how do you replicate that? Um, yeah. That massive session is going to you know you, you can do it with a little bit of kind of you know. So I just totally stole that idea, you know. And uh, you know, tundras are kind of like where I've kind of looked at. Well, you know what? That works. That I that idea is shining up for me to take away, uh, rather than take everything you did. Because there are bits of things I didn't agree with, you know. So I would not do those. Yeah, that's that's actually I'd never thought of that. The burpees and then the and then the hundred meter sprints. That's a that's a really cool session or, or concept. Yeah, and that's a great analogy that you know don't be a sponge, be a magpie. Just pick pick and choose what's going to work with you. You know, work for you as a runner. Um, and that's that's a lot of you know we have a, a variety of guests on this podcast, and a lot of that reason is so that you know our listeners can kind of be like, oh, what a great idea! I never thought yeah. of that. So. That's, that's one way that they, they can benefit. I don't want people out there to kind of go, right, I'm just going to do everything the same way he does. What I'm saying right. is that I'm going to come across with a lot of information here. Anyone that's clever that listens to this will take out one or two ideas and that's it. And go, actually, that would fit in with me and that would fit. The rest of you that is a load of old rubbish. But that bit works. And yeah. that's, that's exactly right. And I've listened to these sort of things and I've gone, yeah, 90%, yeah, rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. Ah, oh, I like that bit. Ooh, I'll investigate that more. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, now, what about, you know, as you've, again, along that previous line of questioning, um, biggest thing that's changed since you were 25 to now about your racing schedule? Um, well, no, I haven't changed a huge amount, obviously, because in my mind, I still think I can still run. I watched the results from Oslo tonight, and... There's some Brits when they were running the B race, and they ran awful. And I'm thinking, I wish they'd have given me that ticket because I wouldn't have wasted it in the same way they did. Um, so, you know, that's why I was the European clubs was a goal for me this year, is because it was a proper grown-up international event. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy that, that won uh, my my event, 500 meters, has run 144 and. 36. The guy who was second ran 334. And when we were in, in the mix zone afterwards, he's going, Oh, yeah, you white man, you run 332, 351. I said, Yeah, mate, about 20 years ago. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. And he, like, he was like, you know, all the, you know, he was like respecting the kind of fact that I was only like a couple, you know, a second and a bit behind him. Yeah. And he kind of like knew the background. And I guess that's the bit where I kind of, you know, and the organizer then wants to interview me. Um, they were going, you bought in 71, 71. I was like, yeah. So they can do the maths in the head sort of thing. I'm thinking, what, what are you doing here? And why are you just finished fourth among, you know, amongst, you know, amongst these guys that are all, you know, kind of like in their early 20s and training full time and, you know, and professional athletes. And here you are in the middle of them or what's going on sort of thing. So, <laughs> you know, I can't try and explain sort of thing, the background of it all. So, um, yeah. I know I, I haven't really had to change things in any way that that is why again you know being a magpie I, I kind of feel that for some reason genetically i'm just lucky and it's, it's it's not anything that i've trained i mean the fact that my body hasn't really changed that much from when you know i was i was competing um i've not had any major injury problems any that are, are kind of stopping me now. I get a little niggles like anyone, but nothing, no, nothing major that's going to stop me. 
Um, and I still seem to adapt to the training. If I train hard for three or four weeks, I can feel it when I race. I, I know that I can keep up with, with, a, with a good pace that, you know, three weeks before that I couldn't. So, you know, and what, what that is, you know, down to, I have no idea. You know, unless you kind of like, you know, did an alien autopsy or man kind of found out what made me tick, I couldn't tell you, you know, that it's just the right mix of whatever it is. Right. Uh, kind of meant that, that I'm a, I don't know, a naturally gifted athlete. Then that kind of worries me in the sense that if I am this naturally gifted athlete, why isn't everybody else doing what I do? And <laughs> why were they able to beat me when I was training hard in my twenties? Um, yeah. If you know, I can still do, still do this now. Well, why can't you lot? You know, why am I the world record? Or you know, the only one that's you know, why is it? It just it seems to be just me and Lagat. I mean, you know, Bernard's going to you know annihilate my records. Hopefully, right. that is. Me, he might struggle with, but he, you know, he should be able to run well inside 358, well inside 342. Um, how, what you know, why is he different? You know, why are we different? Yeah, so, that's something I can't answer. Yeah, and that's you know, that's a that's probably a question that a lot of sports scientists and physiologists yeah. are out there scratching their head about, to be honest. You know, what, what makes these guys, these outliers, where, where does that come from? Um, yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's nothing that we take. It's nothing that we, you know, I've got no special diet. I can't, can't give you any magic potion that's going to do it. Um, you know, I guess it's just a collection of genetics and a collection of circumstances that have kind of left me here. You know, still being able to do what I do at, at, at this age. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm as mystified as anyone. I mean, you know, I kind of, you know, which gives me great freedom in a sense that I just go out and enjoy it. I mean, I was, I ran a, a big race in, um, in Loughborough a few weeks ago and it was like, um, it was like a mini international, so it's England against Wales, against Scotland, against Great Britain juniors, Loughborough University, um, and England. And I've managed to finish second in the race. So beat the, the guy from England, beat the guy from the GB juniors and all these, and they all went into the race, you know, under pressure because they're representing their country or representing their university or, and I'm the only one that went in there completely free because I've got nothing to prove to anyone because I'm never going to run 332 again, never going to run 350 mile again. But I can just go out there and just do what I can do and enjoy it. And if, if, I, if I run, you know, not as well as I hope, really, it's no big deal. You know, I get a bit annoyed at myself, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, because everybody else is looking at you and they're saying, wow, this guy's yeah, 40, I mean, 41 years old now and he's, look at him, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, you know, I ran 148.2 last year, and my race in the Indianapolis was awful. You know, if, I, if I'd have been my own coach, I'd take me off the track, and I'd had a right, right go at me, because I was in such a bad mood that I allowed, allowed the situation to completely overtake me. I mean, I turned up there as you know, just having run that race in Nashville. I thought, well, it's the American Mile Cup. They must have heard of this over-40s guy that has just broken four minutes, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, brilliant to have you here, sort of thing, and... You know, rather than a red carpet and, and you know, and oh, we hit, we, you're in this lane and we, we sort your entry out for you. None of that turned out. They were like, yeah, white man, yeah, yeah, you're in this, whatever, um, in the A race, yeah. $30, please. What? <laughs> $30 to run two laps of the track. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was stunned. I was stunned to kind of like think, well, um, yeah. okay. I didn't know what quite to say. You know, I was just so annoyed that I thought, well, you know, that's, 
anyway, I, I guess I shouldn't have been. Maybe I'm just, you know, you kind of thought that maybe they would have gone, well, you know, what you've done actually is, is quite amazing. We, you know, we're actually going to celebrate it a little bit. No, it's just you're just another athlete. And yeah. I in the race, I ran like a grumpy old man. I was like, I will, I will go out of lane one for anything. And then I was that Pablo Solares guy. Um, mm-hmm. I did um, Mexican engine, a guy, and I was going to beat him. And I was tracking him, tracking him, tracking him. 150 to go. I thought, I've got you, mate. I'm going to come. And I went on the inside. I tried to go up in lane one, and basically the gap didn't open. So I ran into a box and was like, I'm not coming out of this box. You guys are going to go. And I, they weren't even split enough so I could push my way through. They were completely kind of shoulder to shoulder. So I had to kind of like jog 10 meters, reverse out of this box and go around the outside and almost caught him around 148.2. And it was the worst race I've run for a long time. And I was <laughs> and I, could, I could have had a fight straight away. I was so good. I thought, what a great opportunity. And my grumpiness has kind of cost me that. Um, you know, so I, I needed someone just to have, have sat me down and gone, you know, had a go at me because I deserved it. In the end, that's going to be the world record for, for over 40s, and it was an awful race. <laughs> you know, everyone should be, you should be happy you ran 148 too, blah, blah, blah. You know, you, you've got nothing to complain about. I said, no, I could have run 146 high that night. And, yeah. and that's, that's the bit I'll never be able to never be able to do it because I, I can only ever say it now and go, well, no way were you going to run. I said, well, like, you know, I know how I felt. I know how easy I felt. It was just the fact that I was just angry at kind of everything and everyone. So I was like, right, I would not <laughs> be going anywhere near lane two. The, the, the uh, Moses says the Betsy will part in front of me and obviously I'm on <laughs> That's a, that's a great story. And it's a good example of why, um, you know, as a runner, you can't let external factors get in your head or anything. You just have to run your race and, and yeah. deal with what happens. Absolutely right. But, I'm, you know, and that, that is how I hope that I would be, I'm good as a mentor because I've lived through things. I know that I wasted an opportunity there through the fact that no one was able to speak to me before the race. And... You know, what do we call it? Um, when when an, an intervention. I needed an intervention from someone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're kind of like going, look, this is a great opportunity you've got here. If you sort yourself out, you're running great. You just run a you know a sub four minute mile. You could have gone quicker. This is a it's a perfect night. You've got a great race. You know, whatever. If someone had sat me down and done that, I'd gone, yeah, you're right, you're right. But you know, but I was like, no, I was just you know just pissed off. I just was yeah. <laughs> You know, we did an 11 hour journey to get there because we've taken people and you know, dropped people off, and it was just asked about so much that, you know, I just, I, you know, everyone must have a little daydream about if they had a time machine, what point would they go back in their lives knowing what they know now to change? You know, and that's got one of them, you know, but plenty, certainly in my running life anyway, that I would go back and change where I would just, you know, stop myself on my warm up and go, right. This is what you need to do, <laughs> and you know you can't. You know, but it's your little daydreams to kind of think. Well, you know, what would I do? If yeah. Time again. Oh, there's yeah. no doubt, and I, I, like you said, we all have those, especially in running. Um, I've got I, I have a list too long to even start to think yeah. about talking about. <laughs> Everybody is exactly the same, and that and that is you know you kind of like think that all, all these athletes out there 
they run a perfect race every single time. You know, all these kind of like guys that go, you don't. They're all exactly the same as you. They all make clock ups. They all have races in their mind. They think only if only I'd done X, Y, and Z. You know, I could have been this. I could have been that. And it's, everyone is the same. Um, I think when you learn that, you then kind of just relax yourself. Well, do you know what? I'm probably going to make a mistake, mm-hmm. but you know, by knowing I might make a mistake, it might allow me to just have the clarity of thought to not make a mistake. You know, when when it, when the when the situation really matters, which is you know Nashville last year, that was everything. Everything with me as a runner went into that race. You know, I made sure I I got everything right. You know, and and then produced the performance. Um, yeah. You know, so I'm I, you know, I, I keep, I'm capable of doing it. And you just kind of hope it's on the right night. But the worst thing is when I was um my coach said about an athlete. He said, um, "Oh, that guy's going to run three thirty-five. He just won't do it when he wants to do it." Mm-hmm. You know, which is you know, yeah, we do it in some race that means nothing in the season where it don't you know, and then never run that fast again. You know, yep. it's it's about doing it when it actually means something. That's, uh, yeah, that's that's uh, what makes someone great. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, now, you, uh. Oh. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, so I'm not finished. Okay. What uh, are there any supplements that like like you know vitamins or or what whatever amino acids? Is, is there anything now that you take uh, that you didn't take before, or even anything now that you take that you st- you know you're still taking from when you were younger that that you're like you know what this is something that is really important to you know my body and recovery and all of that. Nothing especially. I mean, I, I take a multivitamin as much as a kind of a safety net. I mean, I have a pretty good diet. I think I, I mean, most people know what a good diet is, just whether they can or not. Um, you know, multivitamin using kind of like to cover that. I, I never was too into, um, you know, too much to wear supplementation. A, I was a bit scared that, you know, that it was something illegal and you didn't want to be caught for stupidity because there was, you know, a lot of athletes get caught drug yeah. facility rather than actually wanting to cheat um you know i was wary of that again it was the kind of the sponge system i think if you are a sponge you start you know if someone said oh, i'm taking this you start taking it i'm thinking you, know, you, you take everything whereas mm-hmm. i was more kind of like listen to a few people and maybe if five people were taking it i might take it more seriously <laughs> i think creatine i kind of played about with that a little bit when i was competing never really knew if it was benefiting me too much um i just think you know you just got to try and and eat well and eat, eat healthily I mean, without being really you know anal about it you know and and I have a friend of mine I could steeplechase there and he has to steam all his food because he is a fat bloke trying to get out a bit of chocolate and he's you know he's up 10 pounds it's, <laughs> uh, it's I just couldn't live how he lives you know I, I think that, uh, I'd rather train harder <laughs> and still yeah. be rubbish you know and kind of like pay, pay, pay for it after sort of thing you know right, I've been out and had X, Y, and Z. I've been out for a curry or a you know pizza or something like that. Or my my downfall in Nashville is always Mexicans. You you have <laughs> the Mexicans are like our Indians. We have brilliant Indians, and you have awful Indians. And mm-hmm. you have Mexicans, and we have awful Mexicans here in the UK. So it's kind of a trade-off. So you know, I'd never go for an Indian <laughs> in America, and I'd never go for a Mexican in the UK. But when I'm in the other 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 side of it, you know, it, you know game on. So. <laughs> Now I'm in my downfall. I think Mexicans would make me kind of like yeah, not quite as fast anymore. Yeah. 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 So I, I just I just think that you can if you're just careful. Um, I say I've got no. Again, I've got nothing. I can say take this and take that, and you will run this and that and the other. Um, yeah. 
have. I mean, I, I, I would take painkillers before a race, just an ibuprofen, just, you know, just because usually I've got little aches and pains. I just don't want to feel them before the race. You know? Right. So just, that's more of a kind of a mental state thing. Like, you know, if you're warming up and your calf hurts, you think, oh, God, my calf hurts. If you're warming up and you've had a painkiller, you can't really feel your calf. You think, well, I'm all right. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, that's more of a mental thing. I think than anything else. To be honest, my calf really hurts exactly the same. But because I've had a painkiller, I think, well, I've, I've had an ibuprofen. Placebo effect tells me my calf feels all right, you know, or my, you know, whatever feels all right. Yeah, so absolutely. A lot of it is placebo effect. You, you know, you kind of, because you've taken something, you, you then convince yourself you'll be faster because you've taken it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, some placebo effects are great when they work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if you dial into it, you, you believe in it. I mean, you know, I think a lot, a lot of time it's also down to your mental connection with something. I remember when Red Bull first came out, I had in the first ever can of Red Bull in the Grand Prix final in 97 in Fukuoka uh, in, in Japan. And it was a, um, a mile and it was unpaced. And 200 to go, I was on El Garuzzi's shoulder. 200 to go. And I've never, I've never been that close before, ever. You know, because usually it's paced, he's off and gone, isn't he? I mean, you know, he's yeah. mid, mid 340 miles and, you know, 328, 50 meters. So I'm never, 200 meters to go, I'm like lucky to be, you know, within 30, 40 meters of him. And here I am in, in this race, I'm 200 meters to go, and I'm on his shoulder thinking, bloody hell, this, this Red Bull stuff must be quite good. So that's <laughs> amazing. I then started you know, taking it. It's only caffeine, isn't it? I mean, no, no, nothing, you know, everyone takes it. Everyone has it now. But it yeah. then became something that was associated. Well, last time I had this, I was with El Garou. You know, it's a positive connection. And that is almost as powerful as, as the thing itself. No, there's no doubt about that. Um, what, uh, what do you do... Outside of running, you know, what, what's your day job, Anthony? Uh, I work in a, a running shop. It's pretty boring that I'm coming involved in the same thing. I've done some personal training as well. Um, I'm generally trying to get my clients running anyway. And I enjoy that bit, kind of living through them, because one of the best things about training and racing is breaking new ground. There's nothing like running a PB, nothing like doing a, a PB session where you, you know it's the best session you've ever done in your life up mm -hmm. to that point. That is a great feeling. Um, yeah. I can get my clients to do that because they come to me and they you know they want to I don't know break 40 minutes for 10k or break an hour for 10k. And when in the training session start leading them to kind of achieve their goals, that's great because I feed off that. So I really enjoy that. Um, you know, can seeing them improve and you know I've had people that have run sub four hour marathons 359 and bits and just got under it. Wow, you know you kind of help them do that. So I've enjoyed that. Um, and also, the other thing I do one day a week, which is quite good fun, is um, I don't think you kind of have it out in America, but we have a thing called a white van man driver. And basically, we do deliveries. And I deliver on one day a week. Um, kind of a friend of mine just said, oh, Will you help me out for a day, a day a week? Um, it used to be my kind of day off, but I kind of like, you know, needs must and all that. Um, and the white van driver in the, is a delivery driver, and he's just cheeky. You know, he'll pull out in front of you, not dangerously, but he'll just do things on the road you really shouldn't do. Uh, <laughs> slightly aggressive, you know, and but in a friendly way. So you're <laughs> waving at people, letting letting you out, even though you're coming out anyway. Oh, don't you know? Let me out, let me out. I'm coming out anyway, but I'm just doing it in a nice. Being cheeky with the customers, sort of thing, where you know, I work delivery, sort of thing, and you know, flirting with the girls and whatever. And it's kind of a typical kind of existence. It's quite funny because the joke goes, I think I put it on Twitter the other day, that I'm probably the only white man van. Because usually a white man van is kind of the driver, 
eats pies, you know, as in eats bad food, eats food on the run, he's a bit overweight, you mm -hmm. know, and, you know, like to end up in an early grave because he's forever, you know, sitting in his van driving around. Well, I'm the only van driver that's driving around with compression gear underneath my, <laughs> underneath <laughs> my clothes because I've had a hard session the night before. I've got compression socks on and half tights on and, you know, because I'm trying to look after my legs. So, which is completely the thing that white van drivers would never, ever, ever do. It's completely uncool. Yeah. So, so, uh, so you have a pretty, you know, that's a that's that's pretty much a typical job. You don't you don't you you're not getting any extra benefits out of those jobs for, from a running perspective. Um, my boss, my boss lets me go out for the odd the odd ride. I don't take the mix to be honest. I don't really get. I don't any abuse his um, his hospitality and going out and running a huge amount. You know, when I really need to. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I can't usually run the day I do deliveries. I can't usually fit in training anyway because it starts early in the morning. I usually get back and I'm, you know, it's a busy day. So I often don't run that day anyway. So, you know, I, I just, I say I'm just laid back with, with my running. I, I, I feel like I'm under no pressure. I'm just trying to enjoy it. The only person I, I feel I ever let down is myself, you know, in the sense that I think, oh, if only I could have fit in a bit more training. If only I could have done a few more training sessions, I might have, you know, got closer to four minutes in, in Nashville, for instance, sort of thing, or run a little bit better here, or run a bit there, you know, there. And, but, you know, as I say, I can't really complain, because, you know, lots of Masters runners would probably be very happy to be in my position, so I can't be going around moaning about how disappointed I am, you know, in my performances, because they're like, oh, you just run a 4.03 mile, you're 41, what are you moaning about? Yeah. <laughs> you're right you know but I, I i struggle to move away from that you know because every athlete that i think that is is successful is never happy right and i was i was actually about to say that the, yeah. those those uh disappointments with yourself or, or that that state of being disappointed with yourself is probably a lot of the reason why you you're running a 403 mile at age 41 yeah because you just belligerently think I, if I don't do it well enough, I'll come back the following day, and I will do it. I mean, when I ran that, my fault, I ran 3:45, 500 meters in that race. I mentioned that it was the international against you know the Wales and Scotland and England. Yeah. Um, the day before, I actually ran a mile race in Ireland, and it was horrible, horrible weather. The morning of the race, I'd been out for a run. I dropped my phone. I've lost my phone. It was just the worst day. Uh, four twelve mile, and I ran around. And I was thinking during the race, thinking right, this is I've got this race tomorrow in Loughborough. I'm just going to run this race. I'm just going to run around. I'm going to tempo it. I'm going to get it done, and then I'm going to go and run well tomorrow. And it's kind of what I did, you know. So I just, you know, kind of like effectively kind of sacrificed this race on the Saturday to then, you know, fly in the following day straight to this race in in, uh, in Loughborough and ran really well because I had all that anger inside me. From the day before, where frustration of, of not, you know, of all the things that have gone wrong, you know, losing my phone, not feeling good, you know, and I was able to immediately get rid of it all in a race. And then all of a sudden, you know, I run 3.45, finish seconds, have a great race, and always well in the world within, you know, I can go from being, you know, hacked off with how things have gone, depressed about running, to three minutes later, not caring the world. And that's the power of running, that's what it can do. And if you, you can get yourself out of, the darkest points in your life by running well so yeah. it's, it's a great you know opportunity as long as you've got the right attitude to it you're not always annoyed at yourself I and mean, you're trying to be a little bit kind of 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, you know, I can't look at the race and always say, well, I could have gone better. You know, I ran 3.45, but I ran like a 56 point last lap. Why did, why wasn't I doing it off the front? I could have run 3.41, you know. You can't think like that because you know, it just winds you up even though you want it. <laughs> but that goes back to saying that you're never happy. You know, you always look at what, what else you could have done. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. I think, I think most everybody kind of has or a lot most people at least who are out there getting after it have have kind of that that sort of attitude um kind of moving towards concluding this interview and and you know i want to thank you again for being here today and and taking your time out of your day to talk with me i think you've given you've definitely given our guests a ton of great information that they can cherry pick and and use you know as it's gonna the the bits and pieces that are gonna can contribute positively to their training what uh anthony what what's kind of what would you say your most exciting race story you know in your whole career you know all the way from when when you were when you started as a 10 year old i think you said all the way to today what what would you say is your single most like t- just share that story with us okay. um it's, it's dead easy absolutely dead easy because um it was 1997 monte carlo um, it's a reasonably long story. I'll, I'll, I'll tell the whole thing, and you can always edit it in anyway. <laughs> okay. So I, I, the background is I was running well. I went to Stockholm in the Grand Prix, and I ran uh, 3:34, which was quite early season, which I was happy with. And then I warmed down after the race. And um, if you go to Stockholm, there's a nice wood, and you warm down, and it's warm up in the wood. Um, nice kind of, kind of quiet place to do your, your jog. But it's full of mozzies, and I got bitten by a mosquito, and um, I got infected by it. Well, it's in like I reacted to it, and this was about a week before our national trial. So I came down with some sort of illness, um, flu type thing, and, and then I reacted to the antibodies I was given. So the weekend of the, um, the trials, I was in bed, couldn't make it. I had a doctor's doctor's um, kind of excuse to kind of miss the trials. Thought you know, I run three thirty four, I should be fine to make the world champs ninety seven in. Uh, in Seville it was, um, I think it was Seville, no Athens, Athens in 97 and um, lo and behold another athlete who was quite good in a few years before, made the 92, um, 90, or early 90s he made a world champs final, he had a bit of a comeback and, and ran race somewhere, it wasn't even supposedly a correct time but anyway they decided to pick him <laughs> over me, so I was gutted, gutted uh, that I would miss out on because I knew I was running well. So then I was given a chance to go to Monte Carlo and I was absolutely fuming, um, you know, not, not being picked for this race. And I was so determined to kind of show them how wrong they were. Um, and I had a fairly dodgy agent at the time as well because um, <laughs> I flew from one of the, um, the outlying airports in, in London on one of the worst airlines, EasyJet, which is one of our kind of cheap, no-frills airlines. And when I arrived at the, um, the airport in Nice, when to go to the go to Monte Carlo, all the guys, that, all the Kenyans and a few other British guys from a different agent had flown from Heathrow. And I lived, I lived um, 10 miles from Heathrow. And I'm like, well, why are you guys flown from Heathrow? I had to go all the way to the other side of London to get my flight. So it turned out that the agent was making money off my flight. So they, they give him like $500 for a flight. If he gets $50, he keeps the $450, you know, the allowance. And I didn't know that's how it worked. So I, was like, right. so I got my way across London so, you know, when I could have gone, you know, two minutes away. So that 
made me even more angry. So it's on the start line, I was like, you know, and I've never felt so good before a race. And um, just, you know, my warm-up and my strides, everything I felt, you know, really strong, you know, at peace with myself. And ran this race, and it was, it was proper fast. Daniel Coleman, um, he of 7.20 for 3K, won mm-hmm. race in 3.29. So it was a good, solid pace all the way around. And I kind of, like, stayed off the edge, moved through, and then really had a good last lap. And the, the surreal point for me was um, coming into the home straight, looked across on the inside, and Noren D. Morselli was there, and I went past him. And obviously Morselli was still, and he, I think he, he was still the world record holder, but I'm not sure. But anyway, he was Morselli. He was an absolute legend. Mm-hmm. I passed him, you know, and I kept going. And I ran 332.34. Now, at that point in 97, when the result came out, um, I worked out that the only British athletes that were faster than me were Sebastian Coe, Steve Cran, and Steve Ovette, which are the godfathers. So then on the British list, it goes, legend, 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 me. (laughs) And when I found that out, completely broke down. I was live, I think it was recorded on a... On a on a radio when the, when the, when the result came out and I got I just burst into tears, you know because I just thought you know the guys those three athletes were the reason why I started to be a miler you know they, those guys are those guys are I mean I don't know if you watch the um, um, the Oslo Golden League they had the three of them there tonight the first time in twenty odd years they've been in the same time at the same place co cram there you know and then it was me I was like yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I just done, you know, here, and you know, it was, it was, you know, then it was on the news back at home, you know, the sports news, and this was pre-internet sort of thing, so you know, so it was like a culmination of of everything, you know, at that point, you know, I proved them all wrong, uh, <laughs> I'd shown them how wrong they were, you know, the guy, the guy then went out in his heat in the in the, um, in the world champ didn't make it, didn't even progress to the semis. So, you know, it couldn't have gone any better for me. So it was just a complete middle finger up to the whole establishment to go, you know, <laughs> didn't believe in me. I've just showed you how stupid you are. Uh, yeah. So for so many, so many different levels, it's, it stands out so far from being, you know, you know, my best ever race. You know, because you can say, you know, who I beat, where it was, you know, the circumstances behind it, many different ways. I remember the meat promoter. I mean, because it was like, you know, they negotiated a certain amount of money and I saw the meat promoter and he just gave me a little wink and a nod and he increased the money that I got. <laughs> and it's not awesome. any more than that because, you know, it's like, it's just respect. He just says, well done. You know, it doesn't need to say, you know, said too much. He's got loads of money. I'm sure there's plenty of other athletes that were getting a lot more than I was. But he just mentally said, you know what, I appreciate the fact that you've run hard in my meat. Yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of, what sometimes is missing is you know, kind of mutual respect for people, and I, I still see him. You know, I still see him around. You know, and it's still that mutual respect remains. You think, you know, what you're a good, you were a good athlete in your day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a man. That's a, that's an awesome story. I, I kind of got chills while you were telling that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's kind of probably I would imagine every British schoolboy's dream is to be able to have their name in the same sentence as as uh, those guys, Sebastian Coe and Steve. Uh, of it and stuff yeah. um thank you so much for uh for your time today what no, a no. what a what a great interview <laughs> um so i appreciate that 
all the way from Great Britain. I, I yep. guess that's where you are right now. Yeah, I'm actually on the east coast. So looking out of my window, the next bit of land I can see is probably like Denmark or something. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, and uh, listeners, you can, um, well, I don't know if, if there's any resources that we link. I don't know if, if there's going to be any because there weren't necessarily anything brought up. But maybe I'll go find... Uh, see if I can find a video or something of one of Anthony's races from back in the day. Or at least, I know I can find the video of his Masters World Record from last summer. So, go to www.runnersconnect.net slash rc31. That's the letter R, the letter C, and then the number 31. Uh, thank you again for listening to the Runners Connect Run to the Top podcast. I'm Will Musto, and this has been Anthony Whiteman. And have a wonderful day.